I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Evelyn Asultani, Professor Evelyn Asultani, is a leading expert on the history of representations of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. media. She is the author of Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, which was listed as one of the 10 best scholarly books of 2022 by the Chronicle of Higher Education and was a finalist for the Association of American Publishers Prose Award. She is also the author of Arabs and Muslims in the Media, Race and Representation After 9-11, She is a recently promoted full professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California's Dornsife College. Professor Al-Sultani has also served as an educator and consultant for Hollywood studios, such as Netflix, Amazon, NBC Universal, and co-authored Criteria, the Obaidi Al-Sultani test, to help Hollywood improve representation of Muslims. She has published op-eds in The Hollywood Reporter, Time, and Newsweek, and seems to be one of the most interesting people I have ever talked to as I'm reading her bio. So, um, uh, Professor Al-Sultani, it is so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for taking time to come talk with me. Thanks, Dr. Jill. I'm happy to be here with you. Um, So, I want to get into your book. There's lots of stuff I want to talk about, um, but I would love to hear a little bit about who you are. Um, what, what brought you into this work and, um, what lights you up about this work? So I was born and raised in New York city in the 1970s and 1980s. My dad was an Iraqi immigrant Muslim, and he came to the U S in the 1960s. My mom uh, was a Cuban Catholic immigrant who came to the U S, uh, also in the 1960s. She passed away when I was young, and then my dad remarried my stepmom, uh, who was with me from six years onwards, and she's from Colombia and a Catholic and came to the U.S. in the 1970s. So I grew up in a very mixed ha- household, but I grew up Muslim with uh, some Catholicism sprinkled in the background, but I was not raised Catholic. And uh, I grew up, you know, even though I was in New York City, which is such a diverse city, we were asked every day where we were from, we were asked um, these strange questions about how my parents made their money, whether it had something to do with terrorism or, oh, cocaine, drugs. Uh, And at a certain point, um, I noticed that my parents started lying about where they were from. And I was very confused as an eight-year-old. Why is my dad saying he's from Turkey and my stepmom saying she's from Colombia? And... uh, I eventually figured it out because they didn't want to deal with these questions. My stepmom actually would say she was from Spain instead of Colombia to just avoid all of these questions. So I think those experiences were formative 
and then the media landscape that I grew up with, which was um, uh, Latino drug dealers, and most of the shows that I or movies that I like, like I, I grew up on like the John Hughes movies, Pretty and Things and Some yeah. Kind of Wonderful, 16 Candles, I loved those. And it was all, you know, white casts. I remember only one um, character of color and that was Long Duck Dong, who was from, I think it was Chinese and he was a total joke. He was someone you laughed at. Uh, so I think all those media messages also impacted me. And I did go through a period, which I think is very common. I hear so many people talk about this, where they felt ashamed about where they were from. I felt embarrassed to be Arab, Latina, Muslim. It wasn't cool. It didn't fit in. And uh, and later on, when I realized that these are messages that I received and that there's no reason to be embarrassed about who you are, or your family, or origin, and your background, um, I I basically spent the last 20 years researching representations of Arabs and Muslims in the media and tracking how they're changing over time. That's fascinating. And you know what else is fascinating is that this is not the first time that John Hughes movies have come up in these interviews. Um, Did you grow up with them? I totally grew up with them and talked to a, um, a professor of Asian American studies and he was talking about what that was like for him. And he use the word like he's like I was a joke I mean it was a really really powerful um insight and as white you know white passing kids growing up in the 1980s we just thought they were funny you know it was and it's looking back I, I mean I can't even imagine watching those movies now because I feel like everything about them is probably cringy but um but yeah so I, I'm hearing more and more about those movies um how did you, did you set out to do uh, Muslim American studies in higher education or how did you get into that? So I got into it because it didn't exist and I wanted to learn about the experiences of Arabs in the U.S., Muslims in the U.S. And when I went to college, what was available at the time was that you would go to Middle East studies to learn about Arabs, which is interesting, but I wanted to learn about Arabs in the U.S. context. And mm. for Islam, you went to religious studies and learned about the history of the religion. And yeah, I did that. But it wasn't. I was really yearning to understand my own experiences and looking for courses and you know some kind of direction in ethnic studies and American studies and U.S. history in relation to racial politics. And that did not exist in the 90s when I was in college. And um, I went to grad school in 99 and I proposed that I wanted to bring Arab Americans and Muslims into conversations about race. Got into a program at Stanford based on that proposal. And then when I got there, my advisor said, you know, you're never gonna get a job with this kind of topic. You pick something either in Middle East studies, like women in Islam, or you should pick something in ethnic studies like Latino studies, because that's where the jobs are. And then 9-11 happened and everything changed. There was interest in this question of racialization, how are Arabs marked, marginalized, what is this process? Muslims, wow, well, this is a religious category, but there is something happening that is akin to a process of racializing. And uh, at that time, I connected with other people who were in grad school across the country who were exploring similar questions. And we collectively uh, carved out a space for ourselves in ethnic studies and American studies to look at those questions. 
That's okay. So it didn't exist. Yeah. And then, it, and then how, how did you feel when your advisor told you, like, how was that advice received on your end that, that you shouldn't do it because you wouldn't get a job? I was disappointed, confused, but I understood what she was saying. I knew that she wasn't trying to discourage me. She was trying to be real. Mm. And as a graduate student trying to become an expert in this area that was still developing, I was going through all these journal articles and books and I'd find like an essay here and there written in the 1990s by an Arab American scholar trying to theorize race. So there was a precedent. There were a few people who were doing it, but there wasn't a, a real uh, established body of scholarship. Yeah. And so I knew she was right. And I ended up for my qualifying exams. I did have an Arab American studies list. And then I had a Latino studies list and then I have, and it's, I like, I tried to prepare myself accordingly just in case. And then after 9-11, you know, there were positions available that weren't available previously. And, and it was a really difficult time. One of my colleagues who was also in a similar position as me, we both, you know, got jobs in Michigan. Uh, we were saying, you know, people are being detained, deported, killed in wars. And we're getting jobs. And at least we can use these positions to educate people on what's happening. But it was just a very strange experience. Yeah. What was, if if you're open to sharing this, what was 9-11 like for you, like your daily lived experience? What, how, how was that impact? How, how was that impacted? So as I mentioned, I am Latina and Arab and Muslim, and I identify as all, all of the above. Mm -hmm. uh, but after 9-11, I have never felt so Arab and Muslim in my life. Mm. Like those identities were front and center. And uh, you know, I have this, this uh, memory that has stayed with me. I was living in Oakland, California at the time, and there was a sign in my neighborhood that said, hate-free zone. And I remember realizing that that so it's like, oh, that refers to people like me. I, I live in a neighborhood where people are caring, but there needs to be a sign right now in my neighborhood to not attack Muslims. Yeah. Uh, and I remember my dad had sent me some Islamic art and uh, the frame had a crack in it and I needed to take it to the store. And I was scared to take it to the store because I wasn't sure what the person would think. Yeah. It, it was such a... Um, uh, a time of just heightened stress and anxiety. And I've been reflecting a lot on not only that time period, but, you know, the war on terror started in 2001 and it lasted until maybe when the pandemic began, 2020. And so I've been reflecting a lot lately on what those years have been like collectively and, uh, I wanted to talk to you about it because uh, since you are a healthcare professional, you know, I wanted to know what, what your thoughts are on the impact of racial stress and anxiety on one's health and well-being. Well, yeah. And I'm lucky I wasn't detained. I wasn't deported, you know. Yeah, I had a lot of like what we would re refer to as microaggressions, but you know, in the scheme of what has happened to Muslims, I'm on, I'm on the lucky side. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because 
and you might know about this and you might not, but for anyone listening, the way that trauma impacts our nervous system and our body, there's primary, secondary, and vicarious trauma. Primary is it's, it's happening to me. Secondary is um, it's happening to someone I care about. And then vicarious is I'm happy. It's happening to people on the news or, you know, not me, but I'm, I'm still experiencing trauma um, because of it. And I think they all land in the body the same. I don't, I know they all land in the body the same. That's, that's a fact. And so whether or not you experience microaggressions or whether or not you were detained, you were part of a culture that was experiencing 20 years of oppression, you know, all of the words, you know, I don't know. I don't even know exactly. There's not one word for it. Um, so I feel like it, and we don't choose our nervous, our bodies don't choose that so that's going to impact me this way. And that's going to impact me that way. But when you're watching things happening to people, you, you have a connection to trauma is trauma. So I'll, you know, I'll sort of, you're, you're, you're nodding your head a lot. You know, people can't, people are, are hearing me talk, but you're nodding your head. So I'd love to know what's going through your mind right now, as I was just sharing that. Yeah, it resonates for me, the primary, secondary, and tertiary kinds of trauma. And with the tertiary, I think about, and this applies to every marginalized group that, for example, when there's a hate crime, when it's someone that you don't know, but when it happens to someone in your group, you become very aware of, oh, that could be me, that could be my family, that could be my best friend, that could be, uh, and we've seen that, you know, if you're Black in America and another Black person gets killed by the police, the impact that it has on people of that particular identity, um, you know, it's, it applies across the board with many groups, just uh, seeing people of your group and having that awareness of what's possible in your, in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another thing is just the embodied trauma that gets intergenerational trauma that gets passed on is something I'm, I'm Jewish and our, our, you know, familial, you know, generate intergenerally generational pass on of, of trauma and how it shows up in different ways that don't, all, don't always look like trauma but it shows up in different ways and internalized like you were talking about, like, like not wanting to associate with your own identities, identity, identities, because of that's a trauma response. So um, that, that comes up in a lot of different spaces. Do you, any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I think about when I was growing up, it wasn't only that my father said he was from Turkey instead of Iraq for a while, but he also went by the name Ken instead of Kamal. Wow. Uh, in the 80s and then he went back when he realized that it actually make a difference in terms of his mm. experiences interacting with people and um, I didn't learn Arabic and as an adult I've heard a lot of Arabs say to me shame on your father for not teaching you Arabic and on the one hand it is a casualty of being raised in a mixed race household I did learn Spanish I didn't learn Arabic and mm. speak to a lot of people in mixed households it's you know, common not to get everything from all of your parents on on both sides. Uh, but at the same time, there, my father was trying to figure out how to best equip me. And he decided that I should learn French, not Arabic. So that is also, and he sent me to like schools and I was fluent in French by the time I graduated from high school. And that's, you know, given the world we were living in, he thought the Eurocentric ideals were the way to succeed in the world. And you know, I do, I have taken Arabic classes, 
I can't say that I speak Arabic, but I have to, I have tried in my adult life, mm-hmm. and it is a source of sadness. So there's also a lot of loss that takes place along the way, resulting from those trauma responses. That's such a common theme. Like what people have try to have to sacrifice in order to attain the unattainable of whiteness and 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 what that costs on a cultural level on an emotional I mean on so many different levels but that's I mean I'm hearing you say that and that's something something I've experienced myself also but you know all of it to different extents and all of it with different stories and different um nuances um and it's it's the most ridiculous thing this 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 unattainable thing that has been set as somehow I- ideal and it's the furthest thing from ideal yet it's what it is so um yes. you know people tying themselves into knots in order to fit in and then never really being allowed to yeah and then people within your community criticizing you for not speaking the language rather than saying oh yeah these ideals they really damage us right right another way to other each other, you know, mm-hmm. just another way to point our fingers. Right. Um, how did you, how did you get into the, like, I'm just trying to think of all the different ways that Muslims are going to get portrayed in media, um, media and Hollywood, uh, and all of that, which, how did you get into advising on that? Because I feel like that is so needed um, and so many blind spots in that area. Yeah, so I I moved to LA four and a half years ago. I was living in Michigan for 14 years before then. But right before I moved, um, I had my first opportunity to consult and it was on the movie Aladdin, the 2019 live action movie. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Disney uh, had put together a community advisory council. So there were about 15 of us Muslims, you know, some from civil rights groups, some from the entertainment industry, professors uh, to advise. And uh, what is notable about that first moment and then the experiences that followed is that all of them were after Trump first announced his idea for a travel ban. Mm. So this was roughly 2015, he first uttered the idea for a Muslim ban, and then he became president later. Uh, But Hollywood reacted in a way that was unprecedented and sought to expand representations of Muslims they wanted to finally. And yes, we are in a moment of diversity. We have been um, probably for the last 10 years, this diversity, equity, inclusion language has become very common. And the Muslim ban really uh, pushed Muslims into that conversation. Uh, So for a few years, um, I would say, yeah, I mean, from 2015 to 2020, I've compared notes with uh, one of my colleagues and we were getting a lot more calls than ever before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering now whether that will continue, I don't know. But my, one of the arguments of my book is that we tend to do diversity when there's a crisis. Yeah. Let's talk about crisis diversity. I love, I was trying to like ask myself if I had heard of it before. And then I realized you coined it. <laughs> it's something that you, that you um, named. So could you talk more about that? Cause it, it's, um, I learned more about it from your website and it, 
makes so much sense. So uh, the main argument of the book is that Muslims have come to be included in diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives because of crisis diversity, uh, which is when there is some kind of crisis, it could be a hate crime, it could be a policy uh, that brings attention to longstanding, longstanding racism. So the public becomes aware that there's Islamophobia is a problem. And then it sets off a chain of events. So we'll have um, advisors. I actually want to ask you if you've had this experience. So people like me who work on Islamophobia suddenly getting lots of calls to, to be consulting for Hollywood, advising administration at the university, giving workshops, et cetera. And it is a recipe for burnout, these, these crisis moments where all of a sudden you have to drop everything and, and show up and talk to people and give workshops in this emergency moment. Uh, universities uh, might pass a new kind of um, inclusive uh, initiative. They might increase the number of prayer spaces on campus for Muslim students. Statement, uh, corporations issue statements. So there's a lot of attention to the issue. And then when the crisis passes, it's as if it never happened and we move on and don't really pay any attention to the issue until crisis. So the book is looking at what do these moments of crisis diversity give us? Because things can happen that are good. We have Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, our first Muslim women in Congress that happened after the Muslim ban. Uh, so it can give us things, uh, but I also look at the limits, and there are many limits to the approach, but one of the limits is that if we're only focused on the crisis, then it's hard to really resolve the issue if we're not focused on the root causes. That is so well said. And I feel like that's just like, not just, but like, that's the MO of our culture, um, rise in support, and then it goes away because it's not the cool thing to be talking about. And I'm, I heard you say, you know, it, it, a lot of burnout of kind of dropping everything and having to go out there and educate. But then I'm also wondering what happens when people stop asking. Mm -hmm. You're like, but I'm saying important things and you cared a month ago or six yes. months ago. And what that feels like to have to go through the roller, the roller coaster or the cycle over and over again of attention being shifted elsewhere. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult because, you know, so for me, I've been working on this issue for 20 years and sometimes, you know, it feels like no one cares, but you care and you're doing the work and suddenly people care. And this is the moment to do all the educating and yeah. try to get the messaging out. And so those moments, teach-ins, emergency meetings, consulting, talking to journalists, provide students on campus also going through crisis, providing them with support. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one opportunity, you're like, I don't want to miss this opportunity or not be a part of this opportunity. It's an important moment to push the conversation, to educate people, even if it's going to burn me out. Uh, but yeah, then when it, it goes away, it makes you wonder what the outcome of all of that activity that burned you out. You want the burnout to be worth it. Right, right. Do you see, I mean, you said that we're kind of in this like age of, of diversity. Do you see a shift in how things were? I don't know where the shift began, but do, do you see a shift? I guess, yeah. Do you see a shift? And if so, when, when do you think that started? 
So when I was writing this book, I went through my emails to see when did this DEI language become so popular? And I looked through emails for university communications and I found one from 2014 that, that where the provost of the university said diversity, equity, inclusion, this is our value, this is our mission. And um, what's happened is that diversity, equity, inclusion has come to replace affirmative action because affirmative action has been so controversial. Mm -hmm. So for some time, well, diversity sounds nice. People can get, people don't like affirmative action. They think that you're giving someone something they don't deserve. They don't see it as rectifying historic inequality and providing opportunities. They see it as people who don't deserve things getting ahead in life. And so diversity, it sounds nice. And oftentimes it is spoken about as something that's good for business, it's good for educational institute. It's good for everybody. It's not about someone getting an unfair advantage. So it's become the popular way of talking about inclusion and social justice. Uh, but at the same time, we see right now that there's a lot of pushback against diversity because people have caught on that for many people, it is about social justice. So therefore now there's an attack on diversity. There's an attack on teaching black studies at uh, universities, there's an attack on mentioning anything related to gay or transgender identities in, in Florida. And so there is a, a major attack happening now, but there has been a shift. So if we go back to John Hughes movies, you know, now I, if I look at coming of age stories, you know, I, I watch about a gay Latino young man coming of age and his friend Rahim, who was an Iranian Muslim gay character. Mm -hmm. uh, I watched uh, Never Have I Ever with a South Asian girl lead. So there has been undeniable change. Just the media landscape in itself. It, sometimes I, the, the things I'm watching today, I just, wow, what would it be like to grow up with this? And it's not, you know, we haven't arrived yet. We're not at the, that point. we have to keep working at this. Yeah. Um, but there has been un an undeniable shift. What are some of your favorite, like, books, movies, TV shows that involve Muslim American characters that you think are awesome, that, that you feel like are, are done really well? My favorite is a show that's actually out of the UK called We Are Lady Parts. And it's about five Muslim women who join a punk rock band. It's a comedy. Uh, it's very funny. When I, the first time I watched it, it's streaming on Peak. I cried. I watched the whole thing straight, and uh, I was cried out of happiness. And then I watched it a second time. I watched the entire series twice on the same day. Where is it streaming? Peacock. Peacock. Okay. That's so fun. There's also, yeah, there, so right now there are a handful, uh, thanks to the Muslim band, um, of stories that were written by Muslims starring Muslims about Muslims. And so those are uh, Rami on Hulu, which is about an Arab in New Jersey and protagonist Rami, he's trying to come to terms with his desire to be a, an observant Muslim while living in a, a secular world. Mm -hmm. uh, on Netflix is about a Palestinian undocumented family in Texas. Ms. Marvel is a is on Disney Plus, and she is a 
Pakistani Muslim American teenage superhero. And on um, HBO Max, there is Sort Of, which is about a Pakistani Muslim who is transgender, trying to navigate their way in the world. And so this is a whole new landscape from terrorists and oppressed women. Uh, we still have the terrorists. They're not, they haven't gone away. Uh, we still have um, war movies focusing on the war on terror uh, mm -hmm. that still put Arabs and Muslims in the context of being good or bad in the context of terrorism. Yeah. But there has been an opening. And my main question and concern is whether that will continue if there isn't an explicit crisis. Yeah. What was the name of the one on Netflix? Mo. Mo, like M-O? Yeah, Muhammad, but oh, okay. Mo for short, yeah. And then the one on HBO Max is sort of? Like sort of. Okay, yeah. okay. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to check those out. It's so nice to see it. There were, I wonder if you saw... Um, Mindy Kaling did a thing called Four Weddings and a Funeral, like a, a yeah, TV. I and saw it. I love it. A really great character on there um, who was Muslim and, you know, it wasn't yes. like all about that. It was just, he was like a, a, a norm, portrayed as just a normal guy having a romance and having this and that. And that was a huge part of who he was, but it didn't exactly. pass it or, or anything in any way. Did you see that? I did. So refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, I, in my, you know, in my gaze, I thought it was done really well, but it's nice. To I agree. I love it. So let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, tell me, tell me, so it's called Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. Um, how did you, how did you come to conceive of it? And um, what are the most, what, what are, what are some points you want people to um, take away from it? So I tend to write about contemporary issues. My first book, which is called Arabs and Muslims in the Media, Race and Representation after 9-11, looked at the media landscape for the 10 years after 9-11, where we start seeing a lot of, quote unquote, good Arab and Muslim characters on television, but they tend to be patriots who work for the CIA, who work for the FBI, and who prove that they're American, they prove they're patriotic. Some of them die to prove their patriotism. I'm thinking about shows like 24, Homeland, Quantico. Um, there were so many shows after 9-11 with the terrorism theme because we were in the war on terror. And so I examine what is this, who is this character that's appearing and how effective is and I basically conclude that it's not effective if you're telling a story about terrorism, that you have a quote unquote good one in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second book picks up where I left off, what's happening next. And uh, there are two chapters that look at Hollywood. And so um, what we, it's starting in roughly 2010, uh, we start seeing some secular Muslims appearing. So Muslims who are, uh, Muslim by name, but not by faith, which is fine. Muslims, like any other religion, some are secular, some are observant, and there's a whole range in the middle um, in terms of how observant Muslims are. But at this moment, I was wondering why are there these secular Muslims appearing here and now? 
Uh, I'm thinking about Aziz Ansari's show, Master of None, Kumail Nanjiani's movie, The Big Sick, and even um, TV shows like reality TV shows like Shahs of Sunset, which is about a group of Iranian friends. Some are Jewish, some are Muslim, living in Los Angeles, a very lavish lifestyle. And uh, I came up with the term stereotype confined expansions to describe this trend, which is when writers in Hollywood are trying to diminish a stereotype by um, in a very confined way. So you have a terrorist, okay, well, patriot. We have this idea of this fanatic Muslim, you can't reason with them, okay, we'll have secular ones. And that even though it is an expansion in representations, it's a very limiting approach. And so the first two chapters of the book, I'm, I'm tracing uh, the change up until the Muslim ban and we have an expansion in representations. And uh, the rest of the book looks at different institutions. So one looks at corporations and the issue of cancel culture uh, by looking at a few cases where uh, high profile figures were uh, fired from their jobs for stating anti-Muslim things which was new because many people have been fired for the N-word, but all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait a minute, people care if you say an, an Islamophobic thing? And uh, so I examine basically the limits of cancel culture as not the most effective way to deal with and solve racism. I have another chapter that looks at hate crime laws and another that looks at uh, universities and their diversity practices to include Muslims and the, the big takeaway for people who are interested in these questions of diversity, equity, inclusion is to think about what is an effective approach, what are the limits to approaching um, expanding diversity through crisis moments, what are the opportunities and the limits of that kind of approach. And one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the book is that we have a tendency to individualize racism. So with the cancel culture one, okay, this person said something bad, then we're going to excommunicate them. And then it seems like our institutions are heroes and as yeah. if there's no systemic racism in them. We have to point our fingers at them and feel yeah. real good about ourselves. Yeah. We feel great. We cheer, we cheer them on. Mm -hmm. So um, those are the kinds of, those are the kinds of issues I look at. That is fascinating. I love it. Um, I feel like, I feel like there's so much to learn in this space. Um, and so glad that, that you're putting it out there. How's the response been? I mean, so far, so far, so good. Um, you know, came out in November. I've been doing a lot of podcasts, a lot of public talks and some at universities, some at larger venues and, um, yeah, so far it's been, it's been a great experience to have the opportunity how has this work like impacted your own faith? If you'd call, I don't know if that's a word that you connect to um, your own connect, your connection to your own religion um, and how you observe it and how you feel like embodying it. Um, yeah. I think this work helps me, which was why I even came to the work is that I wanted to figure out what is, what is it, what are the parameters around being a Muslim person in the world, mm -hmm. in the United States in particular. And so I think this has helped me understand that, you know, an experience I might have, that it's not personal, individual, that it's very much linked up to 
all these other social and political forces that are really structuring our lives. And it's not just me, it's Muslims across the United States and in other countries, you know, um, on that topic that we were speaking of earlier about racial stress, the last, those 17, 18 years, the, the memories I have are turning on the news and every week something was happening. So I remember, you know, in the years after 9-11, for example, um, the shoe bomber, you know, the reason we all have to take our shoes off at the airport, Richard Reed, shoe bomber, you know, headline news. And then there was the dirty bomber, Jose Padilla, who was trying to do a, a dirty, create a dirty bomb, headline news, uh, John Walker Lind, white boy from California who converted to Islam and went to Afghanistan and, you know, was, was fighting for the Afghans and he was dubbed the American Taliban. I remember the Fort Hood shooting, you know, a Muslim man who was in the U.S. military, you know, killed his um, colleagues. The Charlie Hebdo attack, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS recruiting, beheading, and then hate crimes, mosque vandalism, people leaving, you know, severed pig's heads at, at the doors of mosques, um, the Islamophobia industry emerging and then declaring a burn a Quran day. Uh, they said that Sharia law was spreading in America and they had all these anti-Sharia law bills uh, passed across the country when there was no threat of Sharia law to begin with. Oh. Uh, there were advertisements on subways about the threat of Islam, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, uh, Abu Ghraib prison, Guantanamo Bay prison, people being detained, tortured, you know, Muslims being tortured in Abu Ghraib prison who had nothing to do with, with anything. And should people be tortured anyway? In Guantanamo Bay prison, Muslim men being held without any due process, without being told why they were being held, uh, secret drone strikes in Yemen. It, it, it was just constant. It was all the time. And then on top of the news reporting and the events, watching 24, watching Homeland, yeah. um, Zero Dark Thirty, American Sniper, it's, I just felt like all of us in the United States were living and reliving the war on terror every day for 17, 18 years. And that was that it became normal as a Muslim to be so hyper aware and in our daily interactions being asked, you know, to talk about terrorism, to talk as if we are responsible for it. There's a, a study that I often cite uh, there was a, a study done out of the University of Alabama that said when a Muslim commits an act of violence, it's reported on 357% times more than when a white person commits an act of violence. Hmm. And then there was another study uh, about the New York Times that said that it looked at like 20 years of New York Times reporting and said that more than half of the stories attribute terrorism to collective responsibility, that Muslims have collective responsibility for terrorism. So it's not just all of these stories, but this over-representation and, you know, watching the news time period, it's no wonder there were so many hate crimes. Right. It's no wonder, you know, uh, so the, the racial stress. So I've been thinking about it a lot because the last few years since the pandemic, the news cycle shifted and we're hearing about the January 6th riots, the pandemic, George Floyd, questions of white supremacy, 
Uh, and I've just noticed that I've exhaled a little bit and I'm just sort of confused and trying to figure it out. But the books have been a way for me to figure out what it means to be Muslim in the world that we are in right now. Yeah, it sounds like it's coming to a better place, but like a tentative, is it is it okay to relax kind of place? That's Exactly. Um, well, this is such, I mean, I've, I've so enjoyed this interview um, and hearing your perspective and learning. I didn't know about half of those, the Sharia law things and stuff being on buses. I had not heard of that or seen that. Um, not that all the rest of it wasn't bad enough, but I, I, you're, you're, you're sharing stuff with me that I wasn't even aware of. So um, reliving that every single day, that's, that's going to take a big toll. And then having things be normalized. Do you, I mean, takes a while to stop being hyper. You mentioned the word um, being hyper aware. I can imagine it takes some time to feel safe relaxing yeah I mean I know you do tapping I, I've taken to tapping mm. you know take you to doing whatever you can and just like calm your nervous system and and be okay um but yeah it's very tentative because all of that happened and you know I think to myself okay does that mean that there's nothing going on in the world that couldn't be brought into the news it, it seems very deliberate to me Mm. But right now, ISIS disappeared. Al-Qaeda disappeared. There's nothing happening. Right. I mean, according to the, the news cycle and the experience, as an American watching the news, right now it seems like those entities that were threatening us every single day of our lives no longer exist. And I remember during that time period reading another study that gun violence in the United States is the number one cause of, of death. And there was a chart that showed terrorism is like this tiny line at the very bottom and gun violence, this, you know, rising graph. And when I saw it, I thought, this looks unbelievable, given the news cycle. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, during those years of the war on terror, it's, it's hard to even conceive that there'd be any other threat as big as the threat that we were told that we were under because of Muslims. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm exhaling a little bit and trying to process also at the same time what, what has happened. What comes next for you? I know that's one of your books, but <laughs> <laughs> what what's what's coming down the pipeline for you in terms of your, not to, it's like when someone has a baby and they're like, when are you having another one? Or you like get married when are you having your first baby? It's like, shut up, just let me live my life. And I'm curious. Yes. I am in a moment of, of reflection now. And since I tend to write contemporarily, I'm observing mm. right now, I'm, I'm observing what's happening and what's, unfold, what's unfolding yeah. next for Muslims in the US. Yeah, I think it's so great that you're able to just take a moment to be with this amazing book and, and all of that and, and, uh, and not feel like there has to be something coming, coming next because it will come next when it's ready yes. to come. You know, the first book uh, took about 10 years and it was about a 10 year period and the same for the second book. So yeah. I'm going off that uh, assumption that the next book might be in 10 years over the next yeah. 10 year period. Yeah. And so you're doing the book writing on top of professoring. Oh, yes. Have it's you a lot. seen a change in your students, like as their approach to what you're what they're learning from you? I have. Um 
when I was at the University of Michigan, I was I taught there from 2005 to 2019. And I created a co-created an Arab and Muslim American studies program in the department there. And during that time, we had students flocking to the courses, a lot of Arab and Muslim students, but students from all over who were also trying to just figure out this war on terror thing. And the Arab and Muslim students in particular were really grappling with their identities in the world. So there was this beautiful synergy that happened. And I um, have a lot of nostalgia for the, that time period of teaching because it felt like I was offering something that students really wanted and needed. Yeah. And um, I recently went back to Michigan to visit and I was telling my colleagues, you know, it's not like that at US. I don't really have that critical mass of Arab and Muslim students who are interested in what I offer. And they're like, no, the moment's passed. It's not like that here either. So I do think that, you know, the the students who are going to college now, they did grow up in the war on terror generation, the 9-11 generation. Um, but perhaps those questions are not as urgent for them right now as they used to be for others. That is sad. Yeah. I'm, because I'm not getting a sense that's because like the work is done. <laughs> you no, know, the work is far from done. It's not like, oh, like the, the youngsters learned what the youngsters needed to learn and now we're moving forward. It's it's um, because we're not in a crisis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. I want to like talk to you all day, but we do need to, we do need to wrap up. How can people find you, follow you, pick up what you're putting down, all of those things? So uh, you can get information about me at my website evelynalsultani.com and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Evelyn Alsultani. Wonderful. Um, I will put links to your website, your social, and of course to your book. I saw it's available on Amazon and it is. Do you work something press? Something something? N yes. NYU Press, NYU Amazon, press. Barnes and Nobles. Okay, so they can get it kind of anywhere. Yes. Okay, what's your preferred link? <laughs> Where do you like to, what link do you like to share with people to buy the book? NYU Press or Amazon. NYU Press, okay. I try to I try to limit the Amazon. It doesn't always. I know. It's so ubiquitous at this point, but I have, we published, we self-published a book a few years ago and it's only available on Amazon. So there's, you know, only so much you can do, but, uh, but that is, amazing that it's that it's so widely available so I'll, I'll make sure to share that link as well any last thoughts before we before we wrap up thank you for having me dr jill appreciate of it course, of talking course. with you it was it was uh so lovely i learned so much so um really excited to share this um and thank you for coming thank you Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.